You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24 as you're doing that. Occasionally I get letters in the mail, and I I got this interesting letter. Uh, It's like somebody took almost a scrap piece of paper and wrote it. And I had to have my wife read it because it's, you know, sometimes people's handwriting is difficult to decipher. Uh, This is sort of like hieroglyphics here, but I had her read through it yesterday. She got most of it for me. I can read very little of it, but it's interesting. So it's a, past, it's a person, just a believer, a fellow you know, believer in Christ, who wrote a little letter. Why they sent it to us, I don't know, uh, to the pastor. Um, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. My name is not important, but my, my message is. And while I can't read it, I'm just kind of going from memory, but as this person is talking It's just a letter of encouragement saying, look, you know, basically stay the course, keep the faith, keep doing what you're doing. And the person says, "Um, I'm sure that, you know, there's people in your congregation. She says, I want to challenge you to ask them to uh, every week invite somebody new to come to church. Isn't that encouraging? I think just, you know, random letter from, from whomever, no return address, no name. But everything I re- we, we read in this letter is just, it's, it's encouraging, it's about the Lord. So uh, whoever you are, thank you, and so we accept your challenge. So, all right. So Matthew chapter 24, this morning, if you would turn there, we're actually going to begin reading uh, back in verse uh, 37 of chapter 23, because that sort of brings it all together. So we'll have the words up here for you if you'd like to just follow along. If you have your Bible, then turn there and read them along with us. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, You shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let uh, whoever reads, let him, him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes, babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. 
Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out, or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Lord, please add your blessing to the reading of your word. And as we consider it this morning, may you enlighten us. May you teach us, Lord. We, we look to you to be our teacher and to guide us in, in the understanding of these things. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So an epic passage, no doubt. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, <clears throat> you know, why did Jesus choose to address them in this way at this time? And certainly part of it was an answer to the questions that they had asked him. But in a, the, there's a passage, and this phrase came into my mind, and I went to search it out to find out if I was uh, remembering it correctly. It's found in Second Peter. Let me just read it to you. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter writes this letter, and of course he's writing in the latter part of the first century. And as he's writing, he's trying to encourage these uh, dispersed pilgrims, these people who are being dispersed because of persecution. And he says, 2 Peter 3.1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. And I think the Lord Jesus is endeavoring to do this with his disciples and indeed with all who would come after and who would be reading his word as we are here today, that he wants to stir us up and that he wants to get us thinking about what's happening because what we're going to read about today is probably one of the most controversial things. There's a lot of people who won't even teach this passage. There's a lot of pastors, I'm sad to say, who won't teach the book of Revelation you know, we have done that and we will do it again. We've been talking about that because of the times we're living in. We, we think we need to be aware of what's happening. And so I believe the Lord and the Holy Spirit today wants to stir us up. He wants to stir up our pure minds by way of reminder. And just to go on with what Peter said, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The Holy Spirit knew that there would be a temptation the further we go along in history, and we haven't yet seen the return of the Lord. And certainly we've seen many people over the years, for any of us who have been around any length of time, People have come and they've said, on this date, Jesus is going to return. I remember um, in the, the 90s, I was, working, I was working in Boston and I was taking a commuter rail in and all that. And as you walk down the street, there were stickers everywhere on lamp posts and street light posts and everything. And I forget the date, but it was a, a date. Somebody had, had put it on there. On this day, Jesus is going to return. And we know that this has happened all throughout history. Going back to as early as 1846, there's someone who did that, who led the church and much of the world astray by making a proclamation, and there's been many since. So when we come to a passage of Scripture like this that is exclusively prophetic, and keep in mind that the Lord Jesus himself spoke, we need to pay attention, we need to be stirred up, we need to wake up. So going back to Matthew 23, picking up where we left off last week, verse 37, 
Jesus speaking to the people there in the temple area. This is his last official public appearance there in chapter 23, his last time speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees publicly. And he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So Jesus acknowledging that in his first coming, they did not recognize him, they did not acknowledge him, they were not willing to believe that he was the Messiah. And this is such a a tender graphic illustration that he gives by saying, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. So Jesus sort of embodying himself as someone who is very loving and very kind and who wants to gather people under his wings. He says, in, uh, the Lord says in Psalm 17, verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings. No doubt our Lord reaching back to these Old Testament allusions and bringing them forward. Who can forget Psalm 91? He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I hope you will draw comfort from this this morning. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Isaiah 31.5 says, Like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. God cares for his people. He always has. And then Jesus said, See, your house is left to you desolate. And so he's about to talk about what that means. What what does he mean when he's saying your house is left to you desolate? But let me also draw your attention to in Luke chapter 19, uh, in Luke's account of the triumphal entry. When Jesus had come into Jerusalem a few days earlier, we're at the end of the day on Tuesday at this point as we're reading this passage um, in Matthew 23 and 24. And we know that we are in Passover week and that on Sunday, of course, Jesus had ridden in on the donkey. It was the triumphal entry. And in Luke's account, Luke 19, at the end of the time after Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem, Luke 19, 41, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you especially in this your day, meaning he is the Messiah coming to his people, The things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So here he is two days later saying essentially the same thing to them. Your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Grabbing a scripture out of Psalm 118, a messianic psalm, pulling it forward and saying, when you see me again, you will be saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now he's going to explain what that means. Uh, Matthew 24, 1, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. No one has an explanation for what were the disciples thinking as they came alongside Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, come here. Look at all these incredible buildings of the temple. And as they were showing this to him, probably in response to, to what he was saying there about uh, what was going to, to, to happen as, you know, your uh, city will be left desolate and, and there's going to be destruction and the other gospel writers bringing this to light. By the way, if you want to go read the other parallel accounts, they're found in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21 for this very passage we're reading here in Matthew 24. 
And so he says here something that was very shocking to them. Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Remember, the temple had been destroyed in the Old Testament when Babylon and Assyria had come and they had leveled the city, judging uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then under the, uh, the leadership of, of Ezra and Zechariah, they went back to restore and rebuild the temple and worship in Jerusalem after the exile. And then in the time of Ezra, uh, as they were sending waves of people back, then God began to speak to and stir up the heart of Nehemiah. Then Nehemiah went back and, to rebuild the city. So the temple was rebuilt during that era. But then uh, several years B.C., uh, King Herod, who was then the, the ruling Roman monarch over the city of Jerusalem, had sort of made temple improvements. And so he spent something like 60 years from around 4 or so B.C. I probably don't have my dates right, till around 63 A.D., uh, just kind of sprucing up the temple and, and building it and, and making it better. And so what he did there, uh, and, and we could go off on this for a while, but we won't, that the temple was so glorious in all of its splendor because of what he did that there was white marble cladding the outside of the building and certain parts of the building were, were colored uh, or covered with gold. And so uh, Jerusalem was a city on a hill. And so every time you come to Jerusalem, you have to go up to Jerusalem. There's no way to approach Jerusalem except to go up. And so they, they say, Josephus, uh, the early historian, tells us that when the sun would, would hit the temple, that it would be so bright that it would be blinding. And so all of this attention has been put on the temple. The temple is the center of Jewish religious life. The temple, of course, is the center of of worship for the Jew. The temple was the embodiment of the presence of God. Remember going all the way back to David. David wanted to build a house for the Lord. So Jesus, as he's saying these things to them, one stone shall not be left upon another that, you know, that shall not be thrown down. So the disciples, verse three, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him. So previously he was speaking to the multitudes. Now he's speaking just to his disciples. And we are told specifically in Mark's account, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. So four disciples, those four came and said to him, uh, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Some people see this as two questions, some as three, but I, here's what they said. When will these things be that you're talking about, Jesus? When's all this going to happen? What are these things? Uh, what will the sign of your coming be and when will be the sign of the end of the age? These are good questions. People want to know the answer to these questions even today, don't they? What's happening, Jesus? When will these things happen? And, and Jesus, we know, uh, as because we're looking back in history, was speaking prophetically in part of the destruction that would come on Israel in AD 70 when Titus Vespasian would go in and level the city of Jerusalem. And it's interesting as he went in in that, in that siege to take over the city, he had instructed uh, his armies not to touch the temple. He wanted to leave that in place because Herod, his predecessor, had rebuilt it. So now in AD 70, we're only seven years post finally finishing the temple. And we're told, again, in the historical records that the soldiers went in and they were angry and they were drunk and all of these things. And someone went in and they threw a torch into the temple and it caught something on fire, a tapestry. And then everything caught on fire. Now imagine this is a stone structure. And imagine the intensity of the heat of the fire that had to take place because what happened is that the gold that was uh, the overlay and the ornamentation for everything in the temple and on the outside, you know, it had gotten so hot that the, the gold had melted and run down into the cracks of the temple. And in their stupor, in, in their fervor, the soldiers began tearing the temple apart, stone by stone. 
And we were told those stones, I forget the dimensions, but the stones were so big, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 165,000 to 200,000 tons per stone. Nobody even knows how they did it. This is one of those mysteries. How did they build this temple with these stones being this large? But the, the soldiers tore the temple apart. They moved these stones. They pushed them out. And they did that so they could get down and extract the gold from the cracks and the crevices of the temple. So these things were fulfilled in part at the end of the first century there in AD 70. So Jesus is speaking prophetically of that, but he's also speaking prophetically as we get into this of the second coming of Christ. He's not speaking here specifically of what we know and understand to be the rapture of the church. Those are, there are separate passages that deal with that. But as we deal with chapter 24, one of the things we have to do here to, this morning is to sort of get our minds in, into sort of a Jewish frame of understanding. Because the things that he's saying to them would have really piqued their ears and would have troubled them severely. But Jesus is also describing the world conditions that would exist during the period between his ascension after his resurrection and the second coming. So if you can take those bookends of time and understand that he's speaking about that entire time period, but as he goes through this first part of the passage, he's focusing on all those things that could happen, not only leading up to AD 70, but leading up to the time of the tribulation. And then he's speaking a little later that we'll get into the time of the tribulation specifically. So Jesus answered in verse four and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. So Jesus speaking to his disciples, speaking to the Jews of the first century, but again also speaking to us. One thing we have to understand about prophecy and prophetic literature in the Bible and this is, this is true all the way back to the earliest prophecies in the Old Testament all the way through. Prophecy almost always has a near and a far fulfillment. A near fulfillment close in to what the, the prophet was being told by the Spirit of God to communicate. And a far fulfillment. Often there was something more prophetic that God had in mind. There was a bigger picture further down the road that he was speaking to. We will look at some of those this morning as we continue. So he says to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Something that we need to understand here today, that much of the New Testament has dedicated passages speaking to us as believers, that we should take heed to ourselves to not be deceived. Let me list a few of those for you. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is meeting with the uh, elders on the beach of Miletus on his way back to Jerusalem, in that address there, in that meeting between he and those men, it's such a, a sweet and an intimate time as he met with them and they fell on his neck and they were weeping because Paul said, you're not going to see me anymore. This is my last trip through here. As he went on in his address there, he says, and take heed to yourselves, for I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, and some will rise up even from among your own ranks and seek to take over and deceive and to draw away others after themselves. That's one place. Jesus spoke of it a, a number of times throughout the Gospels. We don't even have time to go through that, but Jesus spoke a, a number of times about deceivers who would come and try to lead people astray. In 2 Thessalonians chapters 2 and 3, uh, deceivers and false teachers are spoken of. In 2 Peter chapters 2 and 3, deceivers and false teachers are spoken of. Jude, the book of Jude tells us about deceivers and false teachers. There are many. And Jesus says, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Jesus, uh, or the Spirit of God says all the way back in the book of Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel chapter 9 is uh, a key place where we go when we look at what's happening during the time of the tribulation. The time of the tribulation is uh, spoken of in many ways in the Bible. It's spoken of as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's spoken of, especially the last half, as the day of the Lord. Joel speaks of this. It's also spoken of as the 70th week of Daniel. 
And in Daniel 9.27, speaking this, this, issue, uh, this issue here of deception, says, then he shall confirm a covenant. Now I'm just reading one verse out of a context, but the context is, speaking of the Antichrist, the deceiver who would come, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, and that's one seven-year period of time. But in the middle of the week, halfway through three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In other words, the temple will be in operation, and he will commit this thing called the abomination of desolation, which we'll look at in a few minutes. He will make an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Jesus also said in John chapter 5, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So Jesus speaking of his rejection and how eager the people were to, to look for a particular type of leader, whether that leader be religious or political, and they would be deceived. So in verse 6, he says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. From the beginning of time almost to present day, there have always been wars and rumors of wars. These things have happened. These things are a part of history. They're a part of society. They're a part of a fallen world. And these things will always be. But Jesus is saying, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. In other words, those wars and those rumors of wars, even if they happen, are not the end. They are just leading up to the end. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I imagine when people who were living during the time of World War I and World War II, they thought that this was leading up to the apocalypse, that it must be near because of the global nature of which those two wars took place. But Jesus is saying here, those things will happen, and in many respects they will happen with increasing intensity and recurrence. But those are not the end. They, they are a part. They're, they're sort of noise in the background as we come to the end of the age. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. So he addresses a few things here. This is, these are all things leading up to, but are not the end in themselves. They are speaking of, they are telegraphing that the end is coming. So he lists famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. So for them, he's saying to these disciples, these things are going to happen now in their limited lifespan. They only had another 30 or 40 years of life, most of them, some of them less. So they wouldn't see these things and they might hear of these rumors of wars and these famines and these earthquakes and these pestilences. But certainly as you put that in the context of where we are today, famines, these things have been around the world for many years. Even in our present day, with all of the technology and with all of the money we have and all of the resources we have, famines still exist. How many times have you seen on your TV uh, the images of starving children with their ribs poking out? Where there's famines you know, throughout Africa, these, these things are still here. And we, we think, shouldn't we by now have found a way to answer these things and to provide remedies? But these are things that will take place because we live in a fallen world, and they will continue. And the rich will get richer, and the poor will get poorer, and those who are in these desperate situations, these things will continue. In fact, we know when we get to the book of Revelation, when we get into the time of the tribulation, as the seals are opened, in, in Revelation chapter 6, uh, one of the creatures who are released comes on a black horse, and he comes and he brings famines upon the, the, the world. Pestilences, you know, things like, uh, did you hear, you know, in the past couple of years, do you remember hearing about locusts all of a sudden coming alive and, and eating crops? I mean, the, these things are still happening. Earthquakes, this is probably the easiest thing to illustrate. I'm going to try to show you something here if I can get this to work off of my phone. Can I uh, have the... Uh, Apple TV, Jesse, thanks. Let me see if I can find it here, so give me a second. 
It's going to give me a second. If I can do it, great. If I can't, then I can't. All right, looks like I'm not going to be able to do it. What I wanted to show you was a graph. I, I, I taught the Gospel of Mark back in 2008. And when I came to the section of Mark's Gospel... I looked at earthquakes. I went actually to the U.S. Geological Society website, and I looked up their data. They have data going back as far as they could find it. And I actually uh, put all this stuff on a chart and on a graph, and what I had hoped to show you, because it's so dramatic, is that as we move through history and we track sort of earthquakes and their occurrences, what we see is in the last maybe 30, 40 years, we've seen a, a tremendous spike up and uh, although I hadn't updated my chart from then because I hadn't really looked at it, I went to the website and looked. And what's happened since 2008 to now has been almost an, an exponential rise in earthquakes across the world. It's a very dramatic thing to see. And so the point of it is simply this, that as we come to this time in lo- of looking at famines and pestilences and earthquakes, certainly earthquakes is just one indicator that we are speeding toward the end of the age, toward the time of the tribulation. To me, it's shouting that the words of Jesus are coming through. Verse 8, all these things, uh, all these are the beginning of sorrows. So when the disciples said, Lord, when will these things be? They're asking Jesus, you know, when, is, when are these things going to happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming? All these things are the beginning of sorrows. There's a great passage in Isaiah chapter 13 that speaks of sorrows. And it talks about how these sorrows are leading up to a time where the Lord will punish the world for its evil, Isaiah 13, 11, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And so Jesus now in, in this next section in verses 9 through 14 he begins to describe what his disciples must expect during the time between his ascension and the second coming. And so here's what he says to them in verse 9. And he said something similar to this to them previously, but now he's saying it again. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Tribulation is great difficulty. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In other words, people who believe in the name of Jesus will be hated and treated in these ways. Going all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began to warn his disciples that if you believe in me, there will literally be hell to pay because you believe in the name of Christ. And he says in verse 10, and then many will be offended and they will betray one another and they will hate one another. Certainly we've seen this, have we not? As people and families, you know, you get saved And then you want to do the natural thing. You want to tell your family, hey, man, I found Jesus. And you begin to do that, and then your own family turns against you. I have heard so many stories of this being the case. We we have it within our own family as well. Many will be offended and will betray one another and hate one another, certainly in the world of the Middle East, as we talked about that this morning. If you belong, you know, if you're Islamic or, you know, Hindu or any of those persuasions, and then you come to faith in Christ, they not only ostracize you, they beat you, they mistreat you, they expel you from the family, and in many cases, they kill you and treat you as a traitor. He says, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. This began to happen certainly in the time of Jesus. There were false prophets even in the Old Testament. And as I mentioned to you earlier, some of those passages to refer to, the warnings about false teachers and false prophets are serious, and we have many of them today hidden in, in movements in the church. There's one movement you should be aware of. It's called the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. And these are people such as, and I don't mind mentioning their names, the Kansas City Prophets, the International House of Prayer, Bethel Church in Redding, California, And these people have raised up false prophets. They believe that they are receiving new revelation from the Lord today that is on the par of Scripture or higher than Scripture. And that these these prophets, when they hear from the Lord, you must listen to them as the church. They are claiming authority on the, the par with or equal to the Old Testament prophets. 
And he says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Have we not seen lawlessness abound during the time of COVID? I mean, just, just re-roll the tape from 2020. We have to look no further than a year ago to see where we are with, with the issue of lawlessness abounding and the love of many growing cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, speaking specifically uh, of the, the tribulation. Uh, that word saved there is not talking about our salvation. He's talking about being delivered through the tribulation. Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So although Jesus is not talking here about the rapture of the church, when we read in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, which is specifically about the Jews and how God has not forgotten about the Jews and know the church has not replaced Israel. When Jesus uh, came and he, he said, you know, you didn't receive me, you rejected your Messiah. And then we jump into the New Testament time and as the apostles come and they share the gospel and up to Acts chapter 14 or 15, the Jews had, some of the Jews had received the gospel, most had not. But then starting around the time when Paul and Barnabas went out in Acts chapter 13, they went out to where? To the Gentiles. Because the Holy Spirit sent them out. And from that point forward, the gospel went into all the world. Remember the beginning of the book of Acts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the whole earth. And so the gospel continues to roll, to perpetuate, to be preached all over the world. Yes, it started in Jerusalem. That was the epicenter of everything spiritual. But even today, the gospel is still being preached in all the world. There's a wonderful phrase, we don't have time to look at it this morning, in Romans chapter 11 that talks about, till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And we believe that's referring to until the last person in God's economy, the last Gentile is heard and believed, then God is going to be triggered to rapture the church, and then the time of the tribulation will be starting shortly after that. We'll be talking about that in a moment. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. We're going to come to Matthew 28 in a little while. And we know that there, if you've ever read it, surely you have, it's the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. You know, going wherever I tell you and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. This gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Even during the time of the tribulation, we know that God himself will do miraculous things to get the gospel to those people during the time of the tribulation. Now, prophetically, what happens is we're in what's called the church age at this present time. And then when the church is taken out of the way, then the time of the tribulation will begin. And then during that, that seven-year period, there will be people who get saved. Keep in mind that God has taken out of the world the Holy Spirit and the church. And now he's, he, you've got no one on the earth. There's no, no churches per se. There's no Christians to evangelize. So how is God going to get his word out? We're told in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. We have the sealing of the 144,000, and as we read that passage, we're told that they are 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each tribe, and they are sealed, and they are given power and authority to go throughout the whole world, specifically to preach the gospel to the Jews, but then also to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In Revelation chapter 11, we have these two crazy men called the two witnesses, Many believe those two will be the, the, the re-embodiment of Moses and Elijah. But during the ministry of these two witnesses there in Revelation chapter 11, while the 144,000 Jewish witnesses are going throughout the whole earth preaching the gospel, God himself will be having these two witnesses standing by the Wailing Wall or somewhere there in Jerusalem on global television preaching the gospel, witnessing to the goodness of God, and the whole world will see it. And as, as if that wasn't enough, in Revelation chapter 14, God himself commissions an angel to go and to preach the gospel to the whole world. Tell me God isn't gracious. Tell me God isn't merciful. 
that he wants to do these things. And Jesus is saying here, up until the time of the end of the tribulation, this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Then the end will come. During the church age, we are his witnesses. When the tribulation comes and, and all Christian and gospel influence is removed, God himself will bring the purest form of gospel influence to the world through the 144,000 witnesses, through the ministry of the two witnesses, through the ministry of the angel who will preach the unadulterated gospel of God. Now we come in verse 15. Jesus kind of jumps right in to the midpoint of the tribulation. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, I want to say this about that. There's so much here about the tribulation. It's in Daniel. It's here in Matthew 24. It's in Mark 13. It's in Luke 21. The, gospel, the, the, the book of Revelation, certainly uh, chapters 6 through 19, is about what's happening during the time of the tribulation. As we read it, as we understand it, as we preach it and teach it here today, I believe we are living in a time, you know, what we're doing today is being broadcast. It's being recorded And the same is true for many, many uh, gospel evangelical churches all over the United States. I believe that after the church is taken out of the way, these records will be left here. Bibles will be left behind. And people, during that time, when they read these things, when they hear these things, can you imagine? You're in the tribulation. It is completely devoid of God. And you pick up a Bible, you find one laying around, maybe a person who was raptured or someone who died, they left the Bible and you read it and you come to Matthew 24 and you read these things. How it will minister to you, see, it will mean something to you specifically in that point, in that time. Haven't you experienced the presence of God in times of deep need or deep distress where he has ministered to you and you know the Lord ministered to you? God will do the same thing during that time to these people. And he says here, when you see this abomination of desolation, Daniel chapter 9. I just read that verse to you out of Daniel 9, 27. Daniel 11, 31 is another verse that speaks of that. And forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. What is this specifically and what are they talking about? We know the temple was torn down in AD 70. As of today, there is no temple standing in Jerusalem. We we could spend a whole Bible study easily, if not more, on the fact that there, there is an institute, the Temple Mount Institute. There's a website. You can go Google this and look it up. There are people making preparations even today. They've already... They've studied the Old Testament. They've been preparing the priest's garments. They've been uh, finding sources for the red heifer to use in the sacrifices. Uh, They've been making the implements uh, for the temple for use in the temple worship. The temple's not built because the piece of property on the top, the western wall, and if you're not familiar with this, the western wall is actually a retaining wall to the temple mount, which is up on top. And the Al-Asq Mosque, which is the, the Muslim mosque, is sitting in a place on or very near where the actual Jewish temple used to be. And so there's lots of people, lots of research, lots of theories about exactly where would the cornerstone be if we were going to rebuild the temple. But without going into all that, you see the temple has to be rebuilt before the tribulation can begin. Because when the temple is rebuilt, then uh, the, the sacrifices, the, the daily temple worship can be restored. And the temple must be in place and and the daily sacrifices and the worship of God must be happening again, just as it did in the Old Testament for the abomination of desolation to take place. So if we continue on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. This is the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is the abomination of desolation. When this 
one world ruler, this antichrist, and anti means instead of. He presents himself in such a way as he comes on the scene that he is this charismatic world leader and everyone will be drawn to him. And in doing so, as he, he makes this peace treaty with Israel, these are all things we're, we're told in the scriptures. I'm, I'm sort of summarizing because we're, we're just sort of dealing high level with some of this this morning, but we're in the time of the tribulation. What kicks off the tribulation is this, this one world leader comes and he negotiates this peace treaty with Israel. There's been no peace in Israel. The Palestinians and the Israelis and uh, the Islamic people, everybody, they're at war there in Jerusalem. And so when this happens, when this man is able to come in and successfully negotiate that peace treaty, that kicks off the time of the tribulation. And the tribulation, the first three or three and a half years, rather, excuse me, there is tribulation. It starts in Revelation chapter 6. Tribulation begins. But this man is able to somehow to provide the illusion that, that he's got everything under control. Everybody just needs to trust him, just trust in him. He's got it all under control. He's going to work it out. Don't worry about these things. Pay no attention over there. I've got it under control. But then he's literally, from our point of view, from a human point of view, he's going to lose his mind at this halfway point when there's things going on during the time of the tribulation as God is turning up the heat as these seals are broken and the bowls are being poured out of wrath as these things are all happening. And he goes into the temple to the most holy place, to the place where the priests would go once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, to take the sacrificial lamb, to pour out the blood for the sins of the world. And as he would do that, on that day, this man, the one world leader, the Antichrist, will go into the temple and he will commit what Daniel prophesied 700 plus years before the time of Jesus. He will say, that's the abomination of desolation. He desecrates the temple. A man declares himself to be God. And what happens in that moment is the prophecy and the historical account of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 comes out. Now, if you don't know those passages, write them down. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, both recount what happened on the day when Satan fell in heaven. And he says specifically, I will become like the Most High. And he's been trying to do that ever since. And we're told in the book of Revelation, as it looks back on that day when Satan rose up against God and God cast him out of heaven, that there was a third of heaven cast out with Satan because they rose up to follow Satan. And so the abomination of desolation is a big thing. It's a big deal when a man walks into the temple, declares himself to be God and demands that the whole world worship him. It's a critical sign mentioned here in Matthew 24. This is a sign of the tribulation. It's a warning to flee. It's a, it's a sign of the consummation of all things. It's a sign that's foreshadowed in Daniel chapter 11. It's the precise marker of the days to the end of Daniel chapter 12. It's the revelation of the man of sin spoken of in 2 Thessalonians that I just read. And it's the image of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. When that happens, Jesus says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. In other words, whoever's living at that point in time with the Jews in Jerusalem, whomever is there, whoever's alive when this event takes place, when this antichrist goes into the temple, flee, get out of Jerusalem, hide, run for your life. If you're on the housetop, meaning you know, you're, you know, they have flat roofs. They spent time on the, the top of their houses. He says, don't go down to get anything. Just run. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. When you see it, run. Verse 19, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. In other words, he's just saying it'll be very difficult for a nursing mother to run and to flee for her life. And in verse 20, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. He's saying whenever it occurs. Why on the Sabbath? Because the Jews were so religious, and they will be in that day, about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. They certainly can't travel. They can't run for their lives on the Sabbath. And he's saying, pray that your flight may not be in winter, which of course would be tough, or on the Sabbath. 
For then there will be great tribulation. So this is the point. The abomination of desolation is the turning point when the great tribulation begins to take place, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, what is he referring to? We're going to have to wrap this up here, so we're not going to get nearly as far as we had hoped. What is he talking about when he says, such as has not been since the beginning of the world? What are things that God did where he had to judge the world? Well, in Genesis, I think it's chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember the story there? Abraham and Lot, they were getting too big to to live together. And so Abraham said, Lot, you look out there, choose where you want to go, whichever way you go, I'll go the other way. Lot decides to head out to the plains towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He was somewhat enticed by the city and by what was happening. Ends up in that city, becomes an elder and a chief in the city, and a the Lord now sends two angels in. And he, they meet with Abraham by the trees of Mamre and they're, they're headed out. And we, and we find out as they come, one of those angels is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an epiphany, there's an, there's an occurrence of Christ, a Christophany right there. And Jesus sends those angels out to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they go, they have to rescue Lot out of Sodom and his family. And remember, they said, we can't destroy the city until we, we pull the righteous out. That to me, to, me, to us, that's an indication that God, that's why God, the tribulation will not come until God pulls his church out. And so, as fire and brimstone are rained down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, even today, people think they may have found ruins but they're just charred remains. They're just scorched places on the earth where they think Sodom and Gomorrah were. What's the other one? Well, what about the flood? Where God had to judge the world. Genesis chapter 6, remember that? The world had become so evil. Jesus even says, as in the days of Noah. For there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, meaning the days of the time of the great tribulation, it's going to be so intense. As you read from Revelation chapter 13 on, that's sort of the intensity of the great tribulation. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. In other words, God's saying, Jesus is saying that God's grace and mercy will be manifested during the time of the tribulation. And the time will be shortened. No flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. People get confused here thinking that the elect is the church. Now, the church is called the elect in the New Testament. But more importantly, in Isaiah chapter 45, multiple times, and I don't have time to read it, but Isaiah 45, God calls Israel my elect, my elect, my elect. And so the people, the believing Jews, even extended, if you will, to the tribulation saints, those who come to Christ during the time of the tribulation. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. This is how God loves his people, God's grace and mercy. His heart is tender toward his people. The period of the great tribulation, as we wrap it up this morning, is expressed in three ways. In Revelation 11.2, it's called 42 months. Revelation 12.6, 1,260 days. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, it says, for time, times, and half a time. Each time is a year, times is two, half a time, half a year. And he mentions the same thing again in Revelation 12.14. In other words, these are all ways of referring to the time of the Great Tribulation. That three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, time, times, and half a time, when the wrath of God is poured out on planet Earth and poured out on mankind, poured out on sinful man, poured out on Satan. And we know, by God's grace, we won't be here to see it. We will watch it from heaven. I would encourage you to go and read those passages I've mentioned to you this morning. We'll have to stop here at verse uh, 22.
But I want to just sort of pique your interest this morning with, with this fact. Jesus is coming. And all of these things, and, and we're certainly living in days where we're seeing much of these things happen. I mean, who would have thought that a virus could send the world into pandemonium? And the effect of what's happened in the world globally, economically, is not really that much different than what happened when the World War I and World War II happened. You see, God will fulfill his word. Things will happen according to God's plan. Let's not be guilty of or fall into the trap of being deceived into thinking that it has to happen in a certain way. God can use whatever means he wishes to bring about his judgment, can he not? I think the Old Testament saints were shocked when God allowed Assyria and Babylon to come in and judge them and take them away and destroy their city and carry them away to captivity for 70 years. Who would have thought that God would use an unholy, unrighteous, ungodly, pagan, you know, despicable people because of the way they live their lives to become God's instrument of judgment, to become his hand of justice in their lives? Don't think that God can't do something in a way that you haven't yet thought of. What are we supposed to do? We're to keep our eyes on Jesus, aren't we? We're to keep our nose in this book. We're to look to heaven. We aren't to be fixated on what's happening in this world except for the fact that we should be aware, we should be alive, we should be stimulated to pray. We should keep ourselves uh, under the love of God, on the right path, and not become distracted. I, I believe in many respects the things that are happening today are a distraction to take the people of God away from the purpose of God. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6, there in chapter, verses 10 through 20, that great passage that talks about uh, warfare, spiritual warfare and the armor of God. He says, remember, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. Do you remember in the book of Daniel? Daniel was praying and he was waiting for an answer. God always answered his prayers. And then this, this angel comes and he says, I've been trying to get to you for 21 days, but I couldn't because the prince of Persia hindered me from my progress to come and to bring you the answer of your prayer. God has heard your prayers. You see, there's something going on in the spiritual realm and the heavenly places. And while we're looking around and we're caught up in politics and conservative and liberal and vaccination and masks and all that, and these are real, these are real issues. Don't get me wrong, I'm not minimizing, I'm just saying... These things are a distraction from the plan and the purpose of God for his people, for his church. We are to stay on task. We are to stay focused. What is the gospel? It's just like the lady said in the video as we were watching. She said either we believe this or we don't. And I pray this morning as I come back to what I said earlier with Peter, that our, our hearts and our minds will be stirred up by way of reminder. And I'll close with this, the rest of that passage in Second Peter. He says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord, uh, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, next week, read ahead. We're gonna hopefully finish chapter 24. Chapter 25 is an illustration. God, Jesus gives parables to illustrate how we're supposed to live 
in these times. Great things in front of us. So read your Bible and look up for your redemption draws nigh. Amen. Lord, thank you this morning for your word, for meeting us here as we have been worshiping you and studying your word. Thank you for being our teacher. Thank you for being our guide. We love you, Lord. We bless you. And we trust that you've spoken to us. Lord, if there be anyone here this morning or listening who has never trusted in you, I pray and I hope that this has been something that has stirred their soul and that they even right now in this moment would turn their heart to you, Lord, and say, Jesus, I come to you. I'm a sinner. Please, Lord, I don't even know how to do this, but, but Lord, I come to you. I want to be forgiven. I repent. I want to follow you. Lord, I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to be left out. And so, Lord, may anyone in, that, in this moment who is thinking that way, I just pray you'd come into their lives and, and minister to them your truth and your presence. For those of us this morning, Lord, who have indeed been stirred up by, by way of reminder, that may we, Lord, just kind of purge our lives of the, the, the chaff and the dross and resharpen our focus and our vision upon you. May we look up for our redemption draws nigh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.